Myth Became Fact by C.S. Lewis My friend Corinius has advanced the charge that none of us are in fact Christians at all. According to him, historic Christianity is something so barbarous that no modern man can really believe it. The moderns who claim to do so are in fact believing a modern system of thought which retains the vocabulary of Christianity and exploits the emotions inherited from it while quietly dropping its essential doctrines. Quirinius compared modern Christianity with the modern English monarchy. The forms of kingship have been retained, but the reality has been abandoned. All this I believe to be false, except of a few modernist theologians who, by God's grace, become fewer every day. But for the moment, let us assume that Quirinius is right. Let us pretend, for purposes of argument, that all who now call themselves Christians have abandoned the historic doctrines. Let us suppose that modern Christianity reveals a system of names, ritual, formulae, and metaphors which persists, although the thoughts behind it have changed. Quirinius ought to be able to explain the persistence. Why, on his view, do all these educated and enlightened pseudo-Christians insist on expressing their deepest thoughts in terms of an archaic mythology which must hamper and embarrass them at every turn? Why do they refuse to cut the umbilical cord which binds the living and flourishing child to its moribund mother? For, if Quirinius is right, it should be a great relief to them to do so. Yet the odd thing is that even those who seem most embarrassed by the sediment of barbaric Christianity in their thought become suddenly obstinate when you ask them to get rid of it altogether. They will strain the cord almost to the breaking point, but they refuse to cut it. Sometimes they will take every step except the last one. If all who professed Christianity were clergymen, it would be easy, though uncharitable, to reply that their livelihood depends on not taking that last step. Yet even if this were the true cause of their behavior, even if all clergymen are intellectual prostitutes who preach for pay, and usually starvation pay, what they secretly believe to be false, surely so widespread a darkening of conscience among thousands of men not otherwise known to be criminal itself demands explanation. And of course the profession of Christianity is not confined to the clergy. It is professed by millions of women and laymen who earn thereby contempt, unpopularity, suspicion, and the hostility of their own families. How does this come to happen? Obstinacies of this sort are interesting. Why not cut the cord? asks Quirinius. Everything would be much easier if you would free your thought from this vestigial mythology. To be sure, far easier. Life would be far easier for the mother of an invalid child if she put it into an institution and adopted someone else's healthy baby instead. Life would be far easier to many a man if he abandoned the woman he has actually fallen in love with and married someone else because she is more suitable. The only defect of the healthy baby and the suitable woman is that they leave out the patient's only reason for bothering about a child or wife at all. Would not conversation be much more rational than dancing? said Jane Austen's Miss Bingley. Much more rational, replied Mr. Bingley, but much less like a ball. In the same way, it would be much more rational to abolish the English monarchy. But how if, by doing so, you leave out the one element in our state which matters most? How if the monarchy is the channel through which all the vital elements of citizenship, loyalty, the consecration of secular life, the hierarchical principle, splendor, ceremony, continuity, still trickle down to irrigate the dust bowl of modern economic statecraft? The real answer of even the most modernist Christianity to Quirinius is the same. Even assuming, which I most constantly deny, that the doctrines of historic Christianity are merely mythical, it is the myth which is the vital and nourishing element in the whole concern. Quirinius wants us to move with the times. Now, we know where the times move. They move away. But in religion we find something that does not move away. It is what Quirinius calls the myth that abides. It is what he calls the modern and living thought that moves away. Not only the thought of theologians, but the thought of anti-theologians. Where are the predecessors of Quirinius? Where is the Epicureanism of Lucretius, the pagan revival of Julian the Apostate? Where are the Gnostics? Where is the Monism of Averroes, the Deism of Voltaire, the dogmatic materialism of the great Victorians? 
They have moved with the times, but the thing they were all attacking remains. Corinius finds it still there to attack. The myth, to speak his language, has outlived the thoughts of all its defenders and of all its adversaries. It is the myth that gives life. Those elements even in modernist Christianity which Corinius regards as vestigial are the substance. What he takes for the real modern belief is the shadow. To explain this, we must look a little closer at myth in general, and at this myth in particular. Human intellect is incurably abstract. Pure mathematics is the type of successful thought. Yet the only realities we experience are concrete. This pain, this pleasure, this dog, this man. While we are loving the man, bearing the pain, enjoying the pleasure, we are not intellectually apprehending pleasure, pain, or personality. When we begin to do so, on the other hand, the concrete realities sink to the level of mere instances or examples. We are no longer dealing with them, but that which they exemplify. This is our dilemma. Either to taste and not to know, or to know and not to taste. Or, more strictly, to lack one kind of knowledge because we are in an experience, or to lack another kind because we are outside it. As thinkers we are cut off from what we think about. As tasting, touching, willing, loving, hating, we do not clearly understand. The more lucidly we think, the more we are cut off. The more deeply we enter into reality, the less we can think. You cannot study pleasure in the moment of the nuptial embrace, nor repentance while repenting, nor analyze the nature of humor while roaring with laughter. But when else can you really know these things? If only my toothache would stop, I could write another chapter about pain. But once it stops, what do I know about pain? Of this tragic dilemma, myth is the partial solution. In the enjoyment of a great myth, we come nearest to experiencing as a concrete what can otherwise be understood only as an abstraction. At this moment, for example, I am trying to understand something very abstract indeed, the fading, vanishing of tasted reality as we try to grasp it with a discursive reason. Probably I have made heavy weather of it. But if I remind you instead of Orpheus and Eurydice, how he was suffered to lead her by the hand, but when he turned round to look at her she disappeared, what was merely a principle becomes imaginable. You may reply that you never till this moment attached that meaning to that myth. Of course not. You are not looking for an abstract meaning at all. If that was what you were doing, the myth would be for you no true myth but a mere allegory. You were not knowing but tasting. But what you were tasting turns out to be a universal principle. The moment we state this principle, we are admittedly back in the world of abstraction. It is only while receiving the myth as a story that you experience the principle concretely. When we translate, we get abstraction, or rather dozens of abstractions. What flows into you from the myth is not truth but reality. Truth is always about something, but reality is that about which truth is. And therefore every myth becomes the father of innumerable truths on the abstract level. Myth is the mountain whence all the different streams arise which become truths down here in the valley. Or if you prefer, myth is the isthmus which connects the peninsular world of thought with the vast continent we really belong to. It is not like truth abstract, nor is it like direct experience bound to the particular. Now as myth transcends thought, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God, without ceasing to be myth, comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from a Balder or an Osiris, dying nobody knows when or where, to a historical person crucified under Pontius Pilate. By becoming fact it does not cease to be myth. That is the miracle. I suspect that men have sometimes derived more spiritual sustenance from myths they did not believe than from the religion they professed. To be truly Christian, we must both assent to the historical fact and also receive the myth, fact though it has become, with the same imaginative embrace which we accord to all myths. The one is hardly more necessary than the other. A man who disbelieved the Christian story as fact, but continually fed on it as myth, would perhaps be more spiritually alive than one who assented and did not think much about it. The modernist, the extreme modernist, infidel in all but name, need not be called a fool or hypocrite because he obstinately retains, even in the midst of his intellectual atheism, the language, rites, sacraments, and the story of the Christians. 
The poor man may be clinging, with a wisdom he himself by no means understands, to that which is his life. It would have been better that Loisy should have remained a Christian. It would not necessarily have been better that he should have purged his thought of vestigial Christianity. Those who do not know that this great myth became fact when the Virgin conceived are indeed to be pitied. But Christians also need to be reminded, we may thank Quirinius for reminding us, that what became fact was a myth, that it carries with it into the world of fact all the properties of a myth. God is more than a god, not less. Christ is more than Balder, not less. We must not be ashamed of the mythical radiance resting on our theology. We must not be nervous about parallels and pagan Christs. They ought to be there. It would be a stumbling block if they weren't. We must not, in false spirituality, withhold our imaginative welcome. If God chooses to be mythopoeic, and is not the sky itself a myth, shall we refuse to be mythopathic? For this is the marriage of heaven and earth, perfect myth and perfect fact, claiming not only our love and our obedience, but also our wonder and delight, addressed to the savage, the child, and the poet in each one of us, no less than to the moralist, the scholar, and the philosopher.